Hello, everyone. My name is Tanner. Uh, this is the Equality Arizona podcast uh, with our second edition of the Queer and Trans Cultural Hub. I'm with our co-host, Julian Delacruz, and today we are talking to Goodwin, a performance artist and poet from New York City who previously read in our Queer Poetry Salon. So I would just like to say, hi, Goodwin. It's nice to see you. Um, how are you today? I'm good. Thank you. It's nice to be seen. And I'm glad I'm here with you guys. Mercury, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Mercury is doing her thing. Yeah. Yeah, we spent a little bit of time before this podcast navigating three-way technical difficulties. Um, but we made it here. And um, I've, I've really been enjoying to getting to know you since you read at the salon. Um, I'm, thank you, Julian, for connecting us. And I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about you, a little bit about your work, um, and we'll go from there. Um, well, I started out as a writer, a poet, doing um, performance poetry for 10, 15 years. And then I slowly migrated into the world of body performance and DIY performance. And um, yeah, I'm a mom. I'm a veteran. I consider myself an artist. I can finally say that with a smile. I can say that proudly, um, which is very difficult. And share. I love sharing my work. I love sharing my work with you guys. I love collaborating there's not much about me I can say outside of that can you talk about your um, body performances like I've seen pictures and I've read some reviews but I would like to just understand the concept and like what you're what you're up to with that okay so um the first one has been ongoing for three, almost four years now. Um, it's called Ain't I a Woman? And it's loosely influenced by Sojourner Truth's um, history and story behind her speech in 19, I'm sorry, 1853. And it was transcripted. And there's a lot of controversy behind the title, but I wanted to claim the concept of language back. So I stuck with ain't I a woman rather than aren't I a woman. Uh, basically, it's a body performance where I'm topless and I'm going around different parts of New York City doing body poses, doing body stretches. Um, I have writing on my body. Sometimes I... Um, yelp and yell and scream aloud and and bring out the feral side in me just to show that I have ownership of my human body. So um, that's pretty much the practice of that. I'm creating a new body performance called Ghost of Myself and You. And I'm definitely going to try that out in the Bronx 
um, come this summer to arrive to the uh, the scene. And basically, it's more of an intimate side of myself. It's more of the personal, the femininity, the vulnerability of myself enacted in um, physical body performance. So, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited about this summer and um, times to come, even in COVID times. Yeah, I actually was reading um, this amazing essay that you wrote about your performance uh, of Ain't I a Woman? And um, it's such a beautiful, powerful essay. And like, there was a part in the essay where you were t- asking people like not to take your picture. And they were, they were like, regardless of what you were asking. Like some people listened, some people didn't. And I was wondering like, where, like, how did you call up the bravery to be able to do something like this? And like, I don't know, were there, were there, like, when did you start becoming that brave in your art? I, um, I can't take credit for it as in, oh, it was something that I did. It was, it was really, it came out of a cohort with um, Hemisphere Institute called Emergence NYC. And um, I was challenged by um Ed Wood Woodhull and um Woodham and he was a he was a proctor there and he came and he we were doing all types of body movements and he was talking about ritual and a lot of the instructors were talking about ritual and I didn't come up with an idea of what to do and I was like well I could just do poetry and he goes challenge yourself and that it's like it cracked open the sky, that phrase. And so I went home and I remember it was a Thursday. I was in the shower getting prepared to go back to the cohort. And I saw myself topless with all this, with the words, ain't I a woman written all around me. Oh my God. Wow. And I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. I was like, so I'll pitch that to them. But I thought they would say no. And I would like, I was so reluctant to do it, actually. And I was hoping for an out. And my cohort was like, no, you should do it. You should totally do it. And I was I was just so terrified. I was um at the time uh in a custody battle with the state to get my daughter back. And I was like, they're going to look up anything just to take her away. Uh, They're going to arrest me. And little did I know that it's legal to be topless in New York City since 1997. On the books, it's legal. I didn't even know that. So it was like, (laughs) I'm doing this performance. And... I'm I'm being heckled by the audience and then I'm being celebrated by the audience and you can just feel this emotion 
choking and caressing me. And it was like, oh, this is the first time I've ever done something like this. And my cohort was just so loving. They were just so, I mean, they were thinking of me. They would come to watch me. Um, I remember when one of them saw a dude taking pictures and she stood right in front of me while I was posing and would not let him take my picture. And I'm nearly in tears doing these positions and just feeling so grateful that we had each other's back, that so many people had my back. And that was four years ago and it hasn't stopped. So many people have contributed to this performance and to my quote unquote bravery. Um, I don't see myself as a brave person. It's a mountain climb every time I do it. I'm always convincing myself not to do it. And I'm like, all right, up to the last minute, I'm like, I made a commitment, I'm going to do it. And when I do it, I'm like, all right, I'm in it. And I feel comfortable. But it's a mountain climb to get to that comfortability. It's a commitment. It sounds like a commitment. (laughs) It's not easy. It is not easy at all. And I... um. But I'm at a point where I'm like, I want to celebrate my body. I want to celebrate the stories that my body has endured. And I want to go further with that. And how how can I create more body performances that speak to that and bring out this celebratory expression of self? And I want I want women and men to see that. And it's just, I think one of the hardest things about getting men to open up or or those who identify as men to open up about the performance, it's been pulling teeth. It's been pulling teeth. And I think I think because a lot of them don't want to be seen as disrespectful. And I'm like, okay, all right, I get that. And then there have been a lot of them that have been disrespectful. Mm-hmm. So Nicole, I still do it though. Nicole, do you do you have any like upcoming projects or recent projects that found a way like to um use poetry in it or um yeah, I guess like what what is how does like poetry kind of like fit into your visual or like a body performance? Or or do you keep the, the thing separate now or um and that woman sometimes uses poetry or poetic like verse. And I don't steer away from it. Like I remember there was a moment where I did it for Art in Our Places um, body, where Mm -hmm. I was screaming out on 14th and 7th, my body's not for sale. And I wrote that all around me. My body's not for sale. My body's not for sale. I wanted to be believed. And this was, um, this was Ain't I Woman Kingston Legacy. And, um, I don't steer away from poetic verse. 
I let it come organically. So you know? is it like you're freestyling, like you end up like freestyling something or... Or is it, or do you pull from like something that you read before and you just like memorize it or? Sometimes I freestyle. Sometimes it's memory. Um, it's no telling what's come out. It's, I, I call them little testimonials. So it's like these testimonials come out however they, they fit. And I'll have like an audio tape. And just reading of something I've written and it'd be like, this came, this is the source of this and this is the source of that. And not fearing the objection that's going to, that's going to come through the words because it's like poetry is a dangerous thing now. Poetry Mm -hmm. is such a dangerous thing. And it's, it's being popularized, but I think the hardest thing about poetry is that when it's understood as who it's supposed to be and what it's supposed to be is really dangerous. I mean, it's dangerous for power structures anyway. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Like, I almost feel like the way that poetry is being popularized is a way to like neutralize its power by putting it in proximity to military might in a way. I just say. Um, one, one thing I'm curious about is you said that you were a mom and yeah. like you're a queer mom and a queer performance artist, a mom performance artist, a mom poet, all those, like, I'm I'm saying that, but, like, that's, you know, I'm curious, like, I know, I just feel like there's a lot of queer people who are parents, who are artists, um, and that it can be, I'm not, you know, I'm not a parent, but I can imagine it's difficult to manage all of those realities, and, like, so yeah. for those, like, there's a lot of queer parents, though, and I'm curious if you could just talk about being an artist and a parent and being queer and doing body performances and being and using your body as a, like, the way I'm hearing it is, like, as a source of disruption in a way. And, like, having to, like you said, you know, having to receive people's reaction to it. Like, how, like how does that feel? How does that how does that all work together for you? Well, I will start with um I will start with the simplest answer. My daughter does not like my body performances. She especially ain't I a woman. Um, she finds that I'm way too vulnerable. And the key to ain't I a woman is vulnerability, but it's also assertion of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. So it's like I don't give the audience any quarter away from my body. I take up as much space as possible with my body, with my physical presence. I I just expand the volume. And so much of it has made me a more conscientious conscientious person. Um, being a parent, I separate my persona from my daughters as much as I can. 
like I allow her space to be her. Like, especially in school, I go by my original name, Nicole Goodwin. I um go, I go and I'm I'm a parent. Mm-hmm. I'm not a performer, then I'm a parent. And I allow and a lot for my daughter to have her space. And that doesn't mean I don't write about her. That doesn't mean she doesn't influence my work. She does. Um, but I try to be respectful of her space and not invade her world with my work. Um, that's a very crucial thing to me. And um, I think one of the hardest things about being a parent is when you're on stage and when you're off stage. I think a lot of um, performers and a lot of uh, artists in general don't know how to turn the muse off and focus on their kid. And you have to be able to focus on their families, your family, and as its own separate entity and let the work be influenced by your family just as much as your, your, um, your family influences the work. It's a conduit. But you got to be able to, I just did, um, believe it or not, I just did, we did in class a how-to guide of how I made art. And I made it uh, little sketches and it was so cute. And I was like, one of the things I put in it was my family and making sure my family's good. And that's a part of how I make art. That's a conscious part of how I make art. And I feel like for a lot of performers and artists and patrons of the arts, that's not so. And that needs to change. And needs to change a a big deal. I agree. I think, you know, it's kind of one of the dangers of like, some of the movements that really influence queer art and queer culture. Like sometimes I I feel like we grow up and we can have such a being queer and trans, you know, however you identify, like you can have such a difficult time with family that it's almost like de-emphasized in the culture, like the importance of family. Yeah. And, um, like, I feel like that's one of the wounds that we're working through as queer people. And that it's so good to hear you talk about how you're able to separate those two things and how important it is to you. Cause I feel like, I feel like our, you know, and for, I feel like I can only speak for myself, but my observation is, is that, you know, queer communities create their own families a lot of the time. Um, yes. But, it's also beautiful to have a family and to emphasize it in the work that you do. So that's, thank you for talking about that. Oh, no problem. I think the idea of family is that however you get it, you hold on to it and you please make sure that the toxicity level within your family is at a low. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a very intimate relationship. 
And I feel like we are forced as queer people to stay away from these type of intimate relationships. Like they're labeled heteronormative. And it's like, not that I'm knocking anyone who doesn't want to have kids. I get it. It's rough. It's not, it's not an easy thing. Um, It wasn't an easy road for me at all. But one of the things that I realized is that I've never met a person more gracious than the one I've created. And I'm sorry, I'm getting choked up. She's about to turn 18. Uh, Yeah, she is my world. She is my world. And um, don't let anybody rob you of experience. I tell that to all my queer people. Don't let anybody rob you of experience. However you find it, however you're blessed to get it, hold on to it. Hold on to it. And I love the fact that we can create family in different ways. And um, that's powerful. That's powerful. And that's love. And I'm like, don't, don't, don't run away from that. Don't run away from this idea of you, of being loved and giving love because you're worthy of it. That's, that went deep into the center of my soul. And I just feel like this conversation is, is just always going to be with me. Like, wow. Thank you for that. <laughs> We're not even done yet. <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, for that, Nick uh, Goodwin. It's it's really like it's touching for me. I mean, my my family is important to me. My niece and my nephews are like. I love them. You know what I mean? Like I'm planning to write a book to explain some things to them that are difficult for me to just say in the, in the context that they are in now. But um, that's one thing that I think that like for me has always kind of like been a little bit difficult is I feel like, I feel like sometimes there like community can get, can get centered around wounds so much that we forget to love one another and we forget to, we are, we like, sometimes it feels like the way we learn to do that is like, so in the head and built around concepts and abstractions. And it's not necessarily always coming directly from the heart. So it's like, so encouraging to hear you say that and to conceive of ourselves as people that way, like, incredible I mean we have we have so much to offer and we have so much to offer the idea of children and family and I have pursued that concept 
for so many years and personally and professionally. And I think that um, when we embrace family, however we find it, however it finds us, it makes us into better people. It makes us into better storytellers. It makes us into better writers and artists. And it makes us better as people. And I'm like, I just, I want to be a good artist and a good person. And family is a huge part of that. That responsibility has been a huge, huge part of that and part of my life. And that doesn't mean that I haven't made mistakes that means that my mistakes have been forgiven and mm-hmm. I've learned that. And I'm like, when you give people that hand and say, you're my family, it's the greatest act of love. It's the greatest act of love. And it's like those, you know, your nieces and nephews are your kids. Those yeah. are your kids because you are in their lives and you are in their hearts. And it's like I I understand it. It's like if you're a teacher and you gotta you gotta rear certain uh, number of students a year. I'm like, yeah, those are your kids. Those are just as much as your kids as as they are mine. And that connection isn't that connection isn't um sullied by time. If you truly make it. It could be something that they carry on for the rest of their lives. That influence and that that wonder and that awesomeness. It could shape them into into horrible people or amazing people. And that's what family does. That's what family is supposed to do. I feel like I feel like you just said so many incredible things that I really want to hear like as much of your poetry as you're willing to share with us now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> All right, let me see. Let me let me hop hop on the good foot <laughs> as my mom would say. I think one of the hardest things right now that I'm struggling with is letting my letting my daughter grow up into her own person. Mm. And COVID COVID has made it very difficult. for us not to worry about each other. Um, I struggle with mental illness and my daughter worries about that. And she struggles with um, mental illness and health issues. And I worry about that. And some of it's inherited, some of it is exposure and some of it is her. Mm -hmm. So when I wrote 
the first um the first set of poetry around the quarantine series. Cause now I realize it's going to be a series. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure it was going to be a series back then, but now I'm certain of it. And um I wrote this about her. You're hiding again. One, I keep wanting to write a poem about you growing up in this crisis of a virus. Someone said, it's only been three months as if all were well. But I know you. I know that you think, yeah, this shit is it. And you laugh when you want to cry. And you're just not living for the future anymore. You're just living for me. Two. Six months ago, I thought I would bury you. Truly. I mean, some days you smile like the scars on your arm. Too wide, too sharp and present. Scabs too stubborn to heal. And I wonder where do you get this sadness from? Was it me or the father who left and left a hole in his shape? You say you don't need him anymore and that I believe. You found a fine replacement, but you still don't trust the world, honey. You still don't trust the world. And... I'm sorry, I'm I'm choked up. It's hard raising a teenager in quarantine. And it's hard being a teenager in this new normal. And I'm trying to accept that. I'm definitely trying to accept that. So I, I, I'm I trying to give her hope. And this one is the one I wrote, trying to be hopeful. Living under quarantine. Today, I crave my own life as a person that could forgive easily. I wish to hear the whispers of my Black beauty and believers who were not born happy. I wish for the sky to collapse inward and crush my doubts. I wish to read words with my lips unmoving and hear songs that have yet to be sung. Blast them from around the world. Let's see these underground discoveries hang from our lips and stick in our throats from for an eternity or more. Let's see how the narrative has changed in the next few years once we've learned to talk to each other again without crisis. I think um, I think poetry for me has been a catharsis at this time more than ever. Like, I'm really thankful this habit. It used to be a hobby 
that became an obsession and now is um an outlet has followed me through the years and given me strength and given me hope. You guys are kind of speechless today. <laughs> well, we I was just kind of letting you read because I, I feel like I'm in the presence of like a cosmic preaching <laughs> of some kind of like star colored rainbow message. I don't know. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. I, I do have a question for you, which is, it might seem weird, but what do you think that a poet is and how are you that? Um, for me, a poet is just a conduit. I truly believe that. I truly believe poets are conduits to the beyond, from the beyond to here. And um, I believe that because I've been writing poetry ever since I was four years old. And um, that was because my sister was this amazing oral storyteller. Like she had the ancestor's power. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I don't want, I, I want that, but I can't get that. So I'll just do poetry. And poetry became something for me. I didn't consider it to be, I, I never considered myself touched by the ancestors until, uh, 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 this is a true story. Um, someone from my past, my, my childhood contacted me and she reminded me of how I used to write poetry in class. And I was obsessively writing in first grade. I didn't care about anything else. I would daydream and write poetry and daydream and write poetry. And so much I didn't do schoolwork. And then it got to a point where she kept she kept narking on me. <laughs> she was like, Nicole's writing poetry, Nicole's writing poetry. And it's like, she's not doing the work. And the teacher would be like, you need to stop. You need to do the work. And I would put my book under my desk and <laughs> look forward like I was doing the work, but I'm writing poetry on the lines. And I, I didn't realize that. I didn't remember I did that until my friend reminded me. And she was like, yeah. And I was like, wait a minute. You were the only one who knew I did that. And she was like, yeah. Yeah. I was like, wait, the whole class was fooled except you. And I was like, how did you know? I remember just being upset because I was like, I can't get away from this girl. And that was like my first exposure to what love was mm. on my part. I can't speak for her, but 
just just making up poems either just tapping into this river of existence was a gift it was a huge gift and it was like you gave it to a child it was like okay all right and it followed me for years it's still there i still love poetry How do you, do you have like a way that you tap into that conduit? Do you have like a way that you get into it? Like not that you'd have to necessarily share it with us, but like, is it something that you work on or does it just happen for you? Um, It depends on the poem. It depends on the poem. Sometimes it comes out of nowhere. And I'll be doing something else and I'll be like, oh, okay, that's what you wanted to say. And then sometimes it's like I have to ruminate really hard over it. And sometimes I'm just afraid of it. Like a phrase will come out and I'll just, I'll be really afraid of it. Do you you think... um... Or like, what do you, what do you think, like a poem can like do in the world? Oh man, I think poetry can change the, the fucking world. I really do. I really do. I think some of the most brilliant ideas and descriptions of emotion have come out of poems. Like. I remember this very dark poem that um, Langston Hughes wrote. I remember two poems of Langston Hughes that were very short. One of them was very hopeful and bright, and the other one was very dark. And the dark poem is called Suicide and Note. And he just writes, the deep, dark waters ask for a kiss. Mm. And then the 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 super amazing supernova of a poem that I love since third grade was called My People. And it's um the sky is beautiful, so are the faces of my people. The stars are beautiful, so are the eyes of my people. Beautiful also is the sun, beautiful also are the souls of my people. And I'm like, come on, come on. You're exposed to that as a child. And you're like, oh, my God, the implications, the beauty in that. And I'm like, yeah, it could change the world. It could change the world. And then I guess, like, um, one more question I had for you was... uh, there's so many people who feel blocked during the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're restricted. We're like home all the time. Um, what are some things that you maybe like do to like get rid of that, like writer's block or like artistic block? If, if you feel like. I tapped into my emotion. Like I was, um, 
I became kind of infuriated that so many writers and so many artists, especially of color, were like, I don't have, I don't have the, the stimulus, the ability to write. And I was, or, or paint or do this. And they felt like they were dead. And then I wrote this essay, the narrative has value. And why it's not okay to be unproductive during the COVID-19 era. And in it, I said, to me, art itself is a dangerous, is dangerous, especially when it's able to penetrate the racial and cultural structural facade that was not only created by American capitalism, but innovated and enhanced by it through the prejudices prejudices that exist in Western culture and society overall. That's why as a queer Black woman, I find it imperative to produce not only art as conservation or political protest. No, I believe that art must be a vocal piece for, as Nina Simone put it, the sign of the times. And that was just me, that was just me expressing, I was like, I I woke up one morning and I said, what if I catch COVID and I die? What would my legacy be to my kid? And I was like, I want, I wrote this essay because yeah, the narrative has value. The narrative has value. And I'm like, but the to but know the state of grief you are in is a part of productivity. And if you can focus that energy, that frustration into anything creative, then you are on your way to be to the bigger picture, telling your story. Wow. That me that means so much to me because like I don't know, I like last semester, like, you know. I know a lot of people who are in school and they were all just like, you know, Mm -hmm. we're having a really hard time like producing. And like, I literally was like, I'm not going to let this stop me because like, you know, like, I don't know. I felt, I felt this big uprush come under me because like, I don't know, like my work, like, likes to explore things about, like, illness, too. And so I was like, oh, my God, this is a time where, like, everyone's getting sick and, like, this is this is my interest and, like, I, I need to... I have something to say about this, you know? Yes. Um, yeah, it's really weird. <laughs> I think one of the things that I was trying to express when I wrote that essay, I was like, I haven't, I haven't published it yet but I'm going to, I'm going to find a space for it. It's literally not about creating for you. Mm. You have to chronicle the times we're in. Mm -hmm. Must. Because it's like, if we're not going to do it, no one's going to do it for us. Or those who will do it for us will get it absolutely wrong. It's an, 
it's it's unconscionable to leave our story to other people. And that's not to say that I don't believe in um uh cross-racial or cross-generational storytelling. I'm a very big fan of that, but I'm also a huge advocate for black and brown people tell and and other and others telling our marginalized stories first and foremost and not being afraid of that and steering away from that. I think a lot of it is fear. I think a lot of it is fear because it's like we're confronting our um, liminal state of being. And I'm like, okay, what does that mean to to possibly die young? And it's like, well, that means you don't have a lot of time to bullshit, doesn't it? <laughs> I feel like you in earlier when you said that poetry has a danger to it, that there's a there's a way in which telling a story is dangerous in a way for the person telling the story. If your, if your story has always been told by someone else, Mm -hmm. it's like implicit that it's dangerous to tell, to tell the story. So then one, one of the things that I like really am inspired by in this conversation is that, like I feel like you work in the active voice or you work you work from the positive side of creation rather than from the negative or from like um going into a wound or into a trauma like you're working your way into something cosmic through it and that's kind of what like really inspiring to me because I've been thinking a lot about that like I feel I feel like we're kind of like moving into some kind of new aeon or new era and if we keep tearing things apart we're just going to have a broken place so we have to like think about creating creating things where they don't exist and using like that so I'm so inspired by I'm like moved I, I choked up a couple times when you were talking. So I feel like this is such a, this is our second podcast. Um, so I feel like this is such a, a powerful start for us. Um, do you want to read? Can you read just a little bit more for us? Cause like it was just so beautiful. Oh, thank you. I'll read, I'll read from the narrative has value. <laughs> Because even though it's an essay, I think it's really poetic. My name is Nicole Goodwin, and I make art. Not just any type of art, but dangerous art. I call it this because my art is meant not only to not only spark loud external conversation, but also to spark inward self-reflection, not just for my audience, but for naysayers and for myself. 
to me, art itself is dangerous, especially when it is able to penetrate the racial and class structural facade that was not only created by American capitalism, but innovated and enhanced by it through the prejudices that exist in Western culture and society overall. That is why, as a queer Black woman, I find it imperative to produce not only art as conversation or political protest. No, I believe that art must be a vocal piece for, as Nina Simone put it, the sign of the times. Art in any shape or form that is present, it, it, must, it must have elements that depict the history of the downtrodden. This is my belief, particularly for artists and artisans that come from impoverished backgrounds. And in this country, that means those of us who are Black, Brown, peoples, I have also included those of us who come from clusters who currently and continuously have been blackballed, blacklisted, and maltreated. For example, Asian New Yorkers who are experiencing battery because of remarks from a bigoted president about its origins and the rage, raging fearful at the time where COVID-19, the disease-threatened nations, refute such discrimination. And that leads me to the pivotal point that I'm trying know that I need to make. I must be honest, it is more like a plea. Please, people, my people, find a way to become productive. In this crucial time in global history, we need as many people willing to, to do more, create more, to fight harder than ever before. You are needed. Your story is needed to be told. I say these words not to insist that you are are not a value if you cannot produce the next great play, novel, album, painting, etc. It is true. I have found my creative path in these times more than ever, and I do not blame anyone who hasn't. These are trying times for people who, who like me, live to create and show others their inner selves. It's okay to grieve because we were robbed not just by this not just by this disease but also by members of our own government but now the state of grief you are in is a part of productivity and if you can focus that energy that frustration into anything creative then you are on your way to the bigger picture telling your story i feel that the advice it's not okay to be it's okay not to be productive is solely a class-driven one. I say this because many who are given such advice are not taking into account the fact that there are so many on the front lines of this crisis who will never be able to tell about it. That is the price that many of us are shouldering right now, that they will probably spend the rest of their lives damaged by the repercussions of tragedy. I have seen this before when I was deployed to Iraq 17 years ago. I made a promise not to ever stop telling, not just my story, but telling the stories that others could not tell for themselves. Scientists, soldiers, nurses, bus drivers, train conductors, janitors, 
delivery persons, garbage men, and the like are out there struggling, fighting to preserve life. Our jobs know our duty as artists is to create. We are all that is left that can preserve the sanity of the people. Our produce, our produce can and does give voice to the joy and sorrow that these times carry, and it will be heard for generations to come. We have that power more than any other profession, not just because of how much we make for profit, but because of the integrity of how we shape and reshape our lives. We have the opportunity to give a voice to this universal chaos, to bring forth light and shadow so humanity's reflection can be seen with clarity rather than that, rather than through a scanner darkly. More than ever, I have heard the murmurings that come from fear. This is the end times. Plenty of people are saying under their breath while they shut themselves indoors, entertaining themselves to death, watching movies and internet television in order to avoid their fears. Or that plenitude, that exclaim, if I die of corona, I die. As if carpe diem gives way to their excuse to break quarantine and social distancing rules, threatening significant portions of the population around them if they get infected like the elderly, the homeless, and the disabled who cannot afford financially or physically to get sick. All this you know. But what I don't understand is that who will be left to bring truth to power because that time when and where is needed is now, right now. And if you are too busy trying to act as if the situation isn't as, fruit, isn't as fruitful as it could be, well, you might as well convince yourself that all everyone is afraid of is the is really the common cold or the flu these days. I end this with the recap of the Brooklyn Knights and the projects that were taped recounting Biggie Smalls' Juicy. So much so that it went viral. Like the towns in Italy and Spain, New York is under siege by COVID-19. To bear the people... Cry, to hear the people cry out in unison and verse brought me to tears, both of laughter and sadness. Now imagine a world where those people didn't have that moment, that song, that person to represent their existence. As Audrey Lord Brindley said, your silence will not save you. Now I am saying your silence will not save us. Everyone, um, thank you so much. We have been honored and so fortunate and so, I'll just say it, so blessed to be with um, an incredibly spiritual, powerful poet, body performer, good one from New York City. Thank you so much. Thank you, Julian, and thank you, everybody out there. This has been a production of Equality Arizona. Find us online at equalityarizona.org.